0: Good morning. This this is a great season. and This is just a great time to be be part of Summit Drive. And, uh, you know, about a year ago when I started mentioning to my wife, maybe it's time for me to step back a little bit, uh, my wife did say to me, and I don't think I've told you this before, but, you know, I'm getting old, so forgive me if I have. But uh, <laughs> she said to me, Harry, I've got to make it clear to you, if you're leaving, I've I got to tell you, I'm not. So... Uh, <laughs> that was always I've always enjoyed that because she loves being around Summit Drive and we're into our 25th year here now and uh, I think our best days are in front of us I really do why not I guess we were reminded last week uh, we had that ministry of the word from Russell Wilson the Russell Wilson not that one who just plays football but the one who, who's an ambassador for Christ that one uh, that all things are impossible our things nothing is impossible with God right so we can expect great things from God. And I want to kind of build on that theme a little bit this morning, but also just say, you know, I also want to thank all of you who invited someone to our outreach events, our community parties here, whose guests said no to you. Invite him again next year. You know, we get lots of no's along the way too, but let's keep being an inviting church. Uh, I just love the way this church is engaging in the community. You know, we open our building up for a community community, celebrations of life because a lot of the funeral homes simply aren't big enough. And we had one here on Friday, that I think it was 400 plus. And you know, they let the service out here. At the same time, the parents are coming to the school. It looked like New York City at that corner. (laughs) It was just a bottleneck. It was just a bottleneck. But I just sat back and said to myself, you know, uh, you guys make this facility available for basically nothing. And it's just so wonderful that our community can use it in in times of need. It's just fantastic. And and your generosity, you know, month after month at the Benevolent, it is just really making a joyous difference in our community at this time of year. So, So thank you so much. It's just a privilege to be part of you. We'd like to begin this morning with a question. And it might seem a bit presumptuous, but here's the question. What are you presently expecting from God? And I know there's probably something came to your mind. What are you presently expecting from God? It didn't take me long as I reflected on this question for myself, and I had to say very quickly, I'm expecting God to complete the work that he began in me when I was about 18 years old. I'm expecting him to work in my heart so that I'll even want to do the right thing and then have the ability to follow through on it. Uh, I'm expecting him to meet all my needs from here to the day I leave this planet. And I say that because, and I think some of you understand, I'm quoting Philippians right now. Yes, 1, 6, 2, 13, and 4, 19. Those are just promises made to us so we can expect these things. And I want to say this too. I'm expecting to be richly welcomed into heaven one day solely on the basis of what Christ has done for me. Not for a moment. Not for a moment am I entering on my own merit. It's so relaxing to know that I'm being welcomed in simply on the basis of what Christ has done for me. Well, this morning I'd like to talk about the fact that we should have great expectations of God. And I'm not saying that life is ever going to be easy. Think about Mary. She was given a really difficult assignment. You know, I think of Jack and Joyce here this morning. Jack, at this period of life, you have a pretty difficult assignment. But I expect that God will be with you every step of the way. So friends, I really do expect for God to be engaged in our lives And, really, friends, I think we should have the expectation that God's going to continue to meet us in various, very specific ways. But before I come back to this, I'd like to ask another question that seems unrelated to what I just said, but you'll see eventually how this ties together. Here's the question. What single sentence of Scripture best describes the story of the entire Bible? You know, if you've been in alpha, you kind of think of these type of questions because we're always thinking in alpha, how do you best share your faith with others? And of course, you know, friends, I think a lot of you are thinking with me that John 3.16 would be a wonderful verse that really ties up the whole entire, the grand story of the entire Bible. And we all know the verse, don't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Wow, God, out of love, wants us to spend eternity with him. Hmm. You could never go wrong using John 3.16 to tell the grand story of the Bible. But this morning I'd like to offer you another verse of Scripture. In fact, a single sentence of Scripture that I believe is equally as good, if not better, than this John 3.16. Yes, we could use to describe the entire story of the Bible, and here it is. It's from 1 Timothy, Paul's letter to a young pastor by the name of Timothy, where he says this. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Let me read it one more time. For there is one God, and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. You know, commenting on this verse, a fellow by the name of C.J. Mahaney says, in fact, probably you're saying, who in the world is C.J. Mahaney? Well, I didn't know anything about him until I came across this little book by him this last month, probably this three, four months ago, Living the Cross-Centered Life. In fact, it was so good, I, I, I read the first copy and gave it away, and then I got another three copies, and I've given one more away, but I'm working on it through a second time. And if, if you're needing a good read right now, I've got an extra copy for you here this morning. But here's what Mahaney says about this single sentence of Scripture. In this one sentence, Paul succinctly captures the main theme and essence of the entirety of Scripture, Likewise, a fellow by the name of J.I. Packer. Some of you might remember J.I. Packer from the book Knowing God. He was a professor down at Regent College at campus of UBC. And he always throws a few extra words in anytime time he says something, so hold on here. <laughs> this sentence is the key to understanding the whole Bible, for it crystallizes into a phrase the sum and substance of its entire message. And then Ralph Earle, and he's not quite as strong when he says this. This one, this is the one, this is one of the most significant verses in the entire New Testament. Well, this morning I'd like to take some time here to explain how I understand this single sentence of Scripture. And then ultimately I'd like to share with you why I believe this single sentence here supports my conviction that you and I should expect great things from God. So let's begin. Now, admittedly, when you look at this verse, it seems a bit exclusive, doesn't it? There's only one God. Can you imagine someone saying that at that period in history, where there are hundreds and hundreds of gods in that culture? But that's what the scriptures teach us. And yes, there's only one mediator between this awesome God, this one God, And mankind, and that is the man Christ Jesus. (laughs) But may I suggest to you that this verse here, the single sentence, is also very, very inclusive because it says that Christ Jesus gave himself for who? All people. And if we go back one verse, just one verse, we have this statement here God wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Friends, that sounds very inclusive to me. So I think it's fair to say that the gospel is for everyone. God wants everyone to embrace the mediator, Jesus Christ, and be with him forever. Now to say there's only one God is, of course, a belief that Old Testament and New Testament believers held for years and years and years. In the Old Testament, we have this classic declaration found in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy where we hear these words, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. On your handout, I have all these references, so you don't need to write them down. If you can see that handout, that might help you follow me here this morning. And of course, in the New Testament, Testament, we have numerous passages of Scripture that speak to the truth that there is, in fact, only one God, although revealed in Scripture now as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a topic for another time. Now, if we only had one book of the New Testament, 1 Timothy, where we find this single sentence, we'd know a lot about God. And, of course, we shouldn't be surprised because the Bible is, in fact, a great revelation of who God is. But in simply 1 Timothy, here's what we know about God. First of all, that he is God, our Savior. When interested me, so is Jesus, (laughs) This God is the source of grace and mercy and peace. He is also the king eternal. Immortal, invisible, the only God. And I love this. He is the God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I love that verse. Yes, he's the one worthy of all our honor and praise. And yes, he is the one who wants all people to experience salvation and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And of course, the Bible says so much more about who this God is. So much more. And yes, we shouldn't be surprised because the Bible is the revelation of God. So friends, when we pick up the Bible, our first and foremost concern should be who is God? And the Bible will fill our hearts and minds with who in fact God is. And I want to say, to take the time to do so is always, is always time well spent. Now, this single sentence of scripture we're looking at here this morning also speaks of only one mediator between God and mankind. And that is the man Christ Jesus, which is to say that Jesus truly did become a man. He came in the flesh that first Christmas. So we call him God in the flesh. And this truth is so clearly taught in John's Gospel. I, in fact, if you just had John chapter 1, you'd know a lot about God and a lot about Jesus. And here, here's how John's Gospel begins, and most of you have memorized this. In the beginning sounds like the Old Testament book of Genesis, doesn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then a few verses later, we read, and the word, that is God, became flesh and dwelt among us. That is why Matthew's gospel says that Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, theologians use a big word to describe this amazing concept. They use the word incarnation. When I hear words like that, I say, oh, oh. Sounds a little complex, doesn't it? But here's a definition I found, and I believe I have it on your handout that I've really found helpful. And you know I've said it so many times to myself, I've almost memorized it, but here it goes. Incarnation. The act, the act whereby the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, without ceasing to be what he is, God, the Son, took into union with himself what he before that act did not possess, a human nature. So in Christ Jesus, we have the God-man, which makes him totally unique and also the perfect mediator to represent both God and humankind. So then, what is a mediator? I think most of you know. Here's a definition by Ralph Earl. A mediator is one who intervenes between two parties, either in order to make peace or restore peace, or to form a working agreement. Now, I lived most of my life in British Columbia and some of you will know the name Vince Reddy. He was often called upon to negotiate labor disputes. And obviously he did it pretty well because he seemed to be always working on some, um, some form of negotiation between management or the government and the workforce. But you know, friends, in the case of Christ Jesus, he was not primarily doing mediation between two groups of human beings, although it's interesting that Christ's death was aimed at bringing Jew and Gentile together. But Christ's mediation work, friends, focused on bringing God and humankind together. And the key issue on the table was not wages. It was not benefits. It was not working conditions. Rather, the key issue was this. How could a holy God, a holy and loving God, allow human beings to have fellowship with him when in fact they were sinners by nature. And let's be clear about this. We've all contributed to the fact that we needed a mediator mediator because we have all sinned as well. And Paul says it this way, and you memorize this verse if you've been around church for any length of time, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We know that we don't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's glory and God's standards. So we have this deep sense of need within us that we know we need God's forgiveness, his intervention. Furthermore, friends, I don't think anyone here this morning can say I have in response to the question that's raised in the Old Testament book of Proverbs where the wisdom writer says this, who can say I've kept my heart pure? I am clean and without sin. Would anyone dare put their hand up this morning and say, I have? Uh, no one's ever going to do that. No one is ever going to do that because we have this in, inherent understanding that we really do need forgiveness. So although we are created in God's image and we can do tremendous things, think of the creative things that people do. The reality is this, friends, that we all know we fall short of God's glory. And we're guilty before a holy God. And our sin problem not only hurts our relationships with others and even our relationship with ourselves, but ultimately it hurts our relationship with God. Hmm. Yes, yeah, sin alienates people from God. Furthermore, just for a moment, I want to underscore the seriousness of sin. And friends, this will make the good news even better. We have just worked through. Paul's letter to the Colossian church. And in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, we read these words. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And, And there's some good news there, friends, by the way. It says it's possible to put to death these types of behaviors and desires. So we should be very, very grateful for that, that in Christ we can do that. But also, friends, this verse has some bad news. Yes, because of these, these types of sins, the wrath of God is coming. Sobering words for sure. A holy God cannot condone sin or simply say, oh, it's no big deal. Friends, we wouldn't respect for a moment a human judge who threw out every case that came into his courtroom and said, oh, it's no big deal what these people are doing, when we know, in fact, it is a big deal. Neither would we respect a holy God who simply said, oh, your sins are nothing. No, God deals with our sins, and he deals with our sins in the person of Christ. And that is the good news of Christmas. And we read it early on in Matthew's gospel when the angel is speaking to young Joseph, who's wondering what he's getting himself into. And the angel speaks these words to him. She, that's your fiance, will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. But even more specifically, because our mediator, Christ Jesus, suffered God's wrath for us, yes, he took our sins on himself, on the cross, and received the punishment our sins deserved, so we never will. We will never have to. Paul says it this way in his great letter to the Roman church. Since we have now been, what, justified or declared righteous by his blood, by his death, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Christ? Friends, because we've embraced Christ, we will never experience God's wrath. Christ did it for us. Our mediator, Christ Jesus, solved the alienation between God and ourselves by taking care of it on the cross. That's why I think this single sentence of scripture before us this morning so well tells the entire story of the Bible. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Who gave himself as a ransom for all people? Now it's interesting, friends. When you read John three sixteen, it's God the Father giving Christ up, and in this per- verse before us, or this single sentence, it's Christ giving himself up. And of course, there's always an inter- interchange between Father and Son, because what the Father does, the Son does. Friends, I think it's fair to say that Christ's greatest work—and he did so many great things—was on this planet. I was reflecting yesterday with someone who so needs God's healing touch. It'd be so wonderful to see those miracles again in our midst at this time of history. But friends, those were not his greatest work. His greatest work took place when he went to the cross at the end of his life here. He was truly the child who was born to die. That would be his mission. Oh, and by the way, this word ransom here was a very common word in the first century for it was used for the price paid to redeem a person out of slavery. We, however, are not bought out of our type of slavery by sin, by any amount of money, but rather by Christ's life given for us, Christ's blood shed on the cross. Christ did for us what we could never do for ourselves. The sinless Christ took upon himself our sins. Therefore, friends, the mediator, the man Christ Jesus is God's solution to our biggest problem. Hmm. And it's a solution, friends, that must be embraced. A few verses earlier in 1st Timothy, Paul says this: This is a trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why when people pray prayers like, Lord Jesus, thank you for what you did on the cross for me, they are praying among the greatest prayers that could ever be prayed. Quite frankly, I think I prayed that prayer a dozen or more times a year. Not because I need to. I think you only need to pray it once. But I do it as a way of reminding myself, I think, that my hope lies in what Christ did for me and nothing else. Yes, it lies when it Christ did on the cross for me. To summarize, in my thinking, this single sentence, this single sentence, would be a great verse to memorize because that tells us the grand story of the Bible. You know, very early on in the Bible, God is making plans to redeem humanity and he's saying to Abraham, hey, someone's going to be born into your family line who's going to bless the whole world. And that was none other than Jesus Christ, the one who went to the cross for us. And he did it all to restore us to himself. He wants a relationship with us. Our God is incredibly gracious. But now, back to my opening question. What are you presently expecting from God? I truly hope you're expecting him to complete the good work that he began in you. I really hope you're expecting him to work actually in your heart so that your desires will be God-given desires. Not every night, but on a fairly regular basis, my wife and I will fall asleep saying, Lord, work on our heart even while we sleep. <laughs> he can do that, can't he? I sure hope you're depending on him to meet all your needs even when the crunch time is on. I think the best time to quote Philippians 4.19 is right when you get an unexpected bill. You know how things break down in threes? It's the washing machine, and then it's the hot water heater, and then it's something else. Declare, Philippians 4.19, my God shall meet all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. You know, be honest, We don't like spending money on basic necessities. We would rather spend our money on a vacation, right? But God is in the business, first of all, friends, of meeting our basic needs. And I most certainly hope that you're hoping to be welcomed into God's presence one day simply on the basis of what Christ has done for you. Please do not depend on anything you've contributed, any good deeds you've ever done. It is solely on the basis of what Christ has done for you. Furthermore, I hope you have many, many other expectations of God. And I say that because it's in God's nature to be gracious. I love how Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. And this verse has really grabbed my attention recently when he writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, that is Christ, graciously give us all things? Yes, if God would give us his son to die on a Roman cross for us, will he not also graciously give us lesser things? Most certainly he will. Therefore, let us expect God to graciously give us all things, Everything we need to do his will. Everything we need to go through difficult circumstances. Everything we need to accomplish his plans for us. Everything we need to grow in our faith. And yes, even even things for our enjoyment. That's how gracious God is. In closing this morning, I'd like to read a testimony to you. I had a friend write out. He shared with me while he was wiring something in my kitchen. And he told me this story that both illustrates how God lovingly disciplined him and gave him a fresh new start. I quote, When I met my wife in Vancouver, I was building custom homes. God's hand was very much guiding our lives, so at times I was brought along reluctantly. Just before we moved up to Kamloops, I was fired from my job, which kind of hit me by surprise, but I found ways to blame the company or the management and just move on with life, I guess. When we got up here, I got a job at a great union company here in town and thought I had a golden ticket. On the last day of my probation, I was fired again. I didn't make any mistakes, didn't break anything as far as I could tell. I just remember praying on my way home from that last shift and asking God why this happened. And I prayed to God. I asked, or most pleaded with God, that he would change me because I was screwing things up. And he convicted me right then and there that I was a bit of an arrogant jerk. Well, I'm sure he was kinder than that. But the conviction was real enough. It hurt losing two jobs in a row with a family on the way to provide for. Well, God heard my desperate prayer that day. Shortly after praying that prayer, God gave me a job up north as a laborer. Yes, I was humbled. But while in that work camp, I was offered an electrical apprenticeship, a career I'm presently enjoying today. I'm so very grateful for the way God graciously gave me just what I needed. And I'm also grateful that he told me that story and allowed me to share it with you today because it reminds me that we can, I can expect God to intervene in our lives because our God is the one who graciously gives us all things. Amen?